Well, the last four chapters of the book of 2 Samuel mark the last section in the book. And uh, this section is actually different than all the previous sections because uh, the events that are recorded there are not placed in chronological order. Up to this point, the author in both for, for, for both First uh, Samuel and Second Samuel has basically just been telling us a story on how it's happened and how it's ultimately unfolded. And then we get to this last section, and then he goes completely away from that. Some scholars have called these last four, um, four, last four chapters an aside, the author's aside. And in essence, what they basically say is after telling the whole story, he's basically calling us in and basically saying, hey, this is what I want you to get out of this story. This is what I want you to get out of these books. Now, it, it makes sense that he would do this because for the majority of chapter one and in in, in a lot of chapter two, David seemed to be killing it. He seemed to be hitting it out of the park. He seemed to be doing everything right. Then he falls. And when he falls, he falls hard. He falls deep into sin. And this sin not only impacts him negatively, but everybody around him negatively in a really horrendous way. And so it's almost before we leave that the author calls us in and says, hey, listen, I I want to let you know something. I know you've heard some bad things about David. And yes, he blew it. And yes, he sinned. And yes, that impacted a lot of different people. But before we leave, you need to know this. You need to know that indeed David was a man after God's own heart. You need to know that David truly did desire to do nothing more than the will of God. You need to know that David truly was a good king. And the reason he wants us to know that is because he also wants us to know that God is a good king. And so during these four chapters, what he demonstrates is how we see God's goodness lived out through David and God's, and the way that he rules the kingdom is we begin to see God's goodness and the way he rules the kingdom of God as well. So over the next couple of weeks, we just want to talk about God's goodness. And what we find is in a chapter even like this, as difficult as, as it is, as brutal as it is, we can still see God's goodness. Somebody said to me after the first service, they said, God must be good if you can find his goodness in a chapter like this. And indeed, he is a good God. So there's going to be two things we want to look at this morning to remind ourselves of God's goodness. Here's the first is this. The first is the faithfulness of God's justice. God is good because of the faithfulness of God's justice. Now, our story actually opens up in chapter 21 with reference to a three-year famine. It wasn't uncommon for God's people in Israel to ex- experience famines on occasion because of how arid the, uh, the land actually was. But to experience a, a famine that lasted three years, that indeed was unusual And David catches on to this, and he realizes that this is not normal. There must be something going on, and he nails it down to the fact that he believes that this must have something to do with Israel's sin against God, and that God is now judging Israel because of something that they've they've done in the past. And so David begins to seek God out, and the Bible doesn't tell us how he does it, but most likely he went to the priest during that day, and most likely through the use of the ephod, the priest ephod, or the urim, or the thummim, somehow he determines what it is that is the problem. God very graciously tells them. At the end of verse 1, it says, there is a blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. 
So apparently, the, the problem, the reason that God is judging David, judging Israel, bringing this famine about is because of some sin that, that actually Saul had committed years ago against the Gibeonite people. He, he wiped some of them out. He put them to death. And now God is judging them in turn. Now, to understand the real significance of this, we actually have to go all the way back to Joshua chapter 9 to understand the implications here. When you go back to Joshua chapter 9, when God was leading his people into the promised land, he basically told them, leave no man, woman, or child alive. Now, that is difficult, but it was the judgment of God. The Canaanites had become so wicked that they had become beyond redeeming in a way. And so God just said, it's enough. And so he calls them to go in and to be able to wipe the people out and to use the, the, the Israelite people to enact that type of judgment. So they were to wipe them all out, leave no survivors. Well, there's the Gibeonites who really preferred not to be wiped out, as you can imagine. So they come up with this way to deceive Joshua. And so they show up, and, and their horses look tattered, their clothing looks tattered, they grow their beards out, they, unca- they, they, they have their hair long, uh, their sandals look all worn out, and they come to them and they say, hey, look, we come from a very long, long way away, way outside of, of Canaan. And so Joshua believes this, and he says, we just want to come and be your servants. We'll come and do your laundry, and we'll do everything you ask us to do, as long as you commit to us and make a sovereign promise that you will never harm us or our relatives and our family into the future. So Joshua believes, hey, this seems like a great idea. So he makes the covenant promise with the Gibeonites to never, ever harm them. Well, here's the problem. He makes that promise. A little while later, Saul comes on the scene, and out of some national, uh, na- national pride or something, he ends up putting to death many of these Gibeonite people. And because of that sin, now God is holding that against David and holding that against, against the people. So God is bringing about justice. So right in the beginning, understand that this story from the get-go is not about Gibeonite revenge. This story, in part, is about God who cares about justice and sees to it that justice is done. The whole nation of Israel had forgotten about the sin against these people, but God had not. The atrocity was completely out of David's mind. Even when David realized that it was probably because of some sin of their own that was causing God to judge them, this wasn't even one of the sins that even crossed his mind. So it may have been out of his mind, but it wasn't out of the mind of God. You and I as God's people, if God loves justice, then you and I ought to love, long, and pray that justice is done. Amen? We ought to pray that justice is done. I, uh, we should love justice. In fact, um, I felt a sense of this loving justice the other day when I was on our beloved A1A, uh, driving towards the beaches, and I always pray much on A1A, and so I think that's why God put it there. And so I'm driving down the road. We stop at some lights, and by the way, if you're in charge of monitoring and determining how long those lights work and everything, I'm praying for you. And so, so we're stuck. I'm in the very front at the light. I'm stopped. There's another gentleman right on the other side of me. And, uh, and, and so we start up, and, and I could tell the guy behind us is antsy. He just wants to get behind. It might be one of you that was behind us. And, and they were just antsy, and, and, and he was just right up on, behind me. And, and, and no, I didn't slam on my brakes. I didn't do any of those kind of things. I, I kept, we have law enforcement officers. I didn't do that. And we just kept driving and he kept acting like he wanted to get around me 
And I'm like, well, by all means, go around me if you need to, but I'm in the slow lane. And so the guy next to me, for whatever reason, was going exactly the same speed. So he was getting more and more angry. And I could read his lips a little bit in the rearview mirror that he was not happy at all. And, uh, and, and finally, he kind of weaves over. So I decide I'm going to speed up just a little bit to let this guy go by me. And so I speed up a little bit, and, and, and he goes by. And when he does, he gives me this really sweet sign language that lets me know that he loves me and I'm, I'm, I'm his favorite person in the whole wide world. He was telling me I was number one. And, and, uh, and so immediately when he does this, he just floors it. And he just takes off down A1A. And I see him going, and I'm sitting there going, man, alive. You know, where is a good police officer when you need one, right? And you're sitting there, and all of a sudden, way down the way, over the bridge, we're just crossing the bridge, all the way down near this little kind of like subdivision area, I see two people step out into the road and begin to wave the guy over like this. And I realized we had just gone through a speed trap, and they had got him. And they pulled him over. And your pastor... With a big smile on his face, had two words coming to his mind. That was, sweet justice, is what I thought of when he went by. Now, we need to sit back and we need to be careful with this whole loving justice thing because we can't confuse revenge for justice. We must forever be cautious not to confuse the two. Our desire is not for the suffering of the guilty, but rather a desire that a wrong should be made right. That's what justice is. Unfortunately, we live in a world of many injustices. Many injustices are overlooked. They're swept under the carpet. They're simply vanish mysteriously or miraculously, however you want to say it, because uh, somebody knows somebody somewhere who ended up getting them off or they have enough money to get the right lawyer or, or they, they, they end up somehow some way getting off on a technicality and those who are guilty will sometimes go free and, and this happens. This happens in the world all the time. On the other side, there are very innocent people who are convicted and go to jail and they are innocent and they have done nothing. And you and I need to be people who want all justice and justice for all. We should be outraged when innocent people are, when, when, excuse me, we should, be, we should be as outraged when innocent people are convicted as we are when guilty people go free. We should be people who speak up for justice for all people everywhere, no matter where they are. If they are being mistreated, it's wrong, and it is wrong in front of God, and it's and it spurs the heart of God. God wants justice and what is right to ultimately be done. But we are. It's encouraging to know, however, and this is what the passage is trying to teach us, is that even though we may overlook some injustices, maybe it may be that our own government overlooks injustices that God never does. It is never out of His mind. He sees every act of it, and He records it. And he knows all about it, and he ultimately brings justice to it. And so we need to understand it's never out of his mind. We we read about, I read this last week about Supreme Court Justice Horace Gray, who one time had a young man in front of him, and this was in a lower court, and everybody knew that he was guilty. The man knew that he was guilty, but he was able to get off by a technicality in the law. 
And the judge said to me, he says, I know that you are guilty and you know it. And I wish that you, you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge and that there will be, there will be dealt, you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to our fallen laws. Surprised, but yet with a smile on his face, a smirk on his face, the young man left the courtroom, went back to his, his corrupt ways, began to steal and began to uh, uh, break into different homes. One particular day, something happened while he was robbing a home, and he fled out of the window, went down, scaled down a wall, went through, uh, went through a narrow corridor, climbed up a very difficult nine-foot fence, fell to the other side, and found himself inside of the walls of a city prison. And sometimes we sit there and people will look at things like that and they'll say, well, that's karma. It has nothing to do with karma. It has to do with the justice of God. We understand that people who do wrong against each other, anyone who does wrong against each other, Anybody that takes advantage because they are at a disadvantage, anybody who is weak, anybody who has been spurned because of any reason, because of how much money they make, because of, of the color of their skin, because of where they are, because of where they live, whatever it is, God knows the difference and he recognizes when people are being mistreated, period. It's interesting to me that oftentimes that people will sit back and they'll say, especially unbelievers, they'll mock, mock God or judge God, and they'll say things like, well, where is God in all of this? Why doesn't God judge those? Why does God let people get away with such bad things? It's interesting to me that the person that wants to judge God always complains uh, that God doesn't give us enough freedom, and they sit back and they say things like, well, listen, uh, we don't want to be robots. We want to have our own free moral choice to do whatever we want to do. God gives it to them, and then they complain about it because the people with their own moral choice, go out and they sin against God, and then they complain against God who gave them the very thing that they wanted to be able to have in the first place. And so they complain against God, but the question is, is answered very easily. Why does God not judge all of us when we do wrong against another person immediately? And the answer is found in Second Peter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason that he does not bring all of his judgment all in one big swoosh and bring everybody who is guilty down to hell is because he's giving them opportunity to be able to repent and get right. He says, but don't allow, we must not allow the slow, God's slowness to be misunderstood as a lack of, of, of interest or weakness on the part of God. God always takes note of injustices. He, he doesn't forget about them, and we will, he will bring about justice either in this world or in the world to come. If you are mistreating someone in any way, shape, or form, beware. If you're mistreating a spouse, if you're mistreating, mistreating an innocent child, if you're mistreating a neighbor, if you're mistreating people through your business practices, beware. God is well aware. And if you're one who has been mistreated and you've been overlooked, be comforted. Be comforted. God knows your pain. God knows your plight. God does not let people turn the page and just go on with their lives. God will, in fact, bring all things and make all wrong things right, either here or in the world to come. The thing that this helps us with is it frees you and I up from being judges. Because let's face it, you and I stink at being judges. We're terrible at it. We often misjudge what people do and what they don't do. 
We often misjudge the intent of other people's heart, which the Bible tells us very clearly that we are not to do is and judge the intent of other people's heart to determine why they do what they ultimately do. He tells us to stay way away from this. And then we're often too harsh in our judgment that somebody does something very smart to us and we want a pound of flesh for the smallest infraction. But yet God says, and God is the type of judge who is perfect, and he says, give this to me. Allow this to me. Now, let me explain this. It means that you don't have to worry and wait, lay awake at night thinking how the person who's done you wrong, how, they're going to, how you're going to get them to be paid back. You don't have to worry about that. Now, listen, let me, let, let me suggest something. This doesn't mean that we don't use the judicial system. God has given that to you to be able to try to protect those who are innocent and to be able to, 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 to punish those who are doing wicked, you should use that to your benefit because it's why God is given there. But let's really be honest, it fails. And when whatever that system fails is, we take comfort in the know that God will never fail in justice. And you might be sitting here, and you may have been kicked to the curb so many times and been on the blunt end of injustice so many times. You might be wondering, is anybody willing to help? Is God even willing to help? And let me suggest this. If God met, met out justice for the deceiving, pagan, idol-worshiping Gibeonites, then he is certain to mete out justice for you, his precious child of God. So the first half of this is really about justice. It's the faithfulness of God's justice. The second part of this passage is about the brutality of God's atonement. The brutality of God's atonement. David wanting to be able to make amends for Saul's sin and at the same time to be able to take away the suffering of his own people, he reaches out to the Gibeonites and he asks them, what must be done to make this right? What do I have to do for us to be reconciled one to another? He actually says it this way in verse 3. No, here's the key to the passage, I believe. He says, And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement? See the word atonement there? Make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. What do I have to do to make all of this right? Now, the word word atonement there, it speaks of reparations, or it speaks of, of, of satisfaction for a wrong that is done. And that's what he's asking, is what needs to happen here. Well, the Gibeonites respond. Look how they respond. It said, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, because neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. Now, there's a couple things you have to understand here. Just, just follow along with me. First thing is, is the Torah, the law, the Jewish law, commanded and required retribution in kind for the innocent party, for the person that has been injured. And what that simply means is, if you do something to me that costs me money, then it's going to cost you money to make it right. Does that make sense? In the same way, and this is retribution in kind, if you end up taking a life, then in turn, to make that life, a life must ultimately be taken. So that's what's going on in this text. So when the Gibeonites come to them, he tells them very clearly, hey, this isn't about silver or gold. It wasn't silver or gold that was taken to us, inferring the fact that this has to do with taking a life. A life was been taken, but now a life needs to be given. But then they sit back and they say, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. They were just saying, we don't have the legal right. We're, we're not in charge here. This is your country. We're vis- visitors and guests here. You only have the right to be able to take a life. He says, so where are we to be able to say what needs to ultimately be done? Well, David keeps pushing on this. And he keeps pushing them and says, what needs to be done? Make your request. Finally, they come in verse 5, and they make it. It says, they said to the king, the man who consumed us, speaking of, of Saul, 
and plan to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. So in essence, hey, he killed many of our sons. Now we want seven of his sons to ultimately be put to death. Now listen, for we 21st century American mindset people, this seems a bit much, does it not? I mean, we want to kind of sit there and go, hey, easy, fellas. Let's just sit down and like, let's talk this out. Let's do what Americans do. Let's just sue each other like crazy. Let's just sue each other. That's the American way. I mean, look, if you get enough money, it will make everything okay. But the question is, why is it that seven people have to die here? And for two reasons. Number one is I've already explained it with the Torah. The Torah had already explained that this had to be retribution in kind. Lives were taken. Lives have to be given. But there's another reason why lives have to be given. And that is because of the covenant promise that had been made back in Joshua chapter 9. In Joshua chapter 9, if you go back and read, it literally says that Joshua cut a covenant with the Gibeonites. Israel cut a covenant with the Gibeonites. That's an important fact factor because it demonstrates how they actually did the cutting of the covenant. You, you've heard this before in our study. Let me say it just very briefly. They would take a bull or they would take some type of animal. They would cut it in half. They would lay it in two different parts. Then the two people, two representatives of those two nations would come together. They'd put their arms together and then they would walk through that divided animal and then they would swear to each other their allegiance. Hey, we will never kill you. Hey, we will always serve you. And if we break, any of us breaks this particular covenant promise, then may the same thing that we did to this bull end up doing to us. May we be destroyed. May we be ripped apart. And that's what's happening here. What's happening here is the reason that men have to die is not only because the law demanded it, but it's because the, co- the broken covenant promise demanded that this is what they would happen. That was the whole point of entering into that covenant promise. And so we sit there, and you might sit to yourself and say, well, okay, well, I'll give you that. I understand an eye for an eye. We got that, you know, maybe death penalty, maybe we, we get that. But it still doesn't make any sense because it's not Saul who's suffering. It's his son who's suffering. It's the sons that are being put to death. That's not right. What, how, what are we to make of that? And you might even have biblical precedence for making that argument. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 16, it says this, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children to, to death for their fathers. Each is to die for their own sin. In other words, you shouldn't have to pay for the consequences of the sin of your daddy. Uh, a, 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 a father, if, if the son goes out and breaks the law, shouldn't have to pay the consequences of, of, of the sins of their son. I mean, I think we all agree with that. Then what's happening here? Because now the sons are paying for the sins of the father. What's happening? There's two different things. The law in Deuteronomy chapter 24 dealt with individuals. When an individual sins, they should, not pay, they should be the ones that pay, not somebody else. But when we talk about Joshua in Israel and we talk about the Gibeonites, we talk about two nations coming together making a promise to each other. So it's not one individual. It wasn't Saul that blew it. When Saul came and broke the covenant, all of Israel broke the covenant. When he sinned, all the nations sinned. When he brought upon himself uh, the, the debt of sin, he was bringing the debt of sin on everybody else. They were all guilty. And so what happens here, by these sons coming and dying, this is a type of substitutionary atonement. Saul wasn't around to be able to pay the price, so somebody else would pay the price for him. Now, 
all of this, you say, what do we do? Well, it's really a graphic picture of our spiritual condition. You should already be sitting there. I mean, there's a group of men who are going to end up on a cross at the end of the day in substitutionary atonement for somebody else's sin. Does anybody need help seeing the gospel there? And so what we find is we find this graphic picture of our sin. The question is, why do we have to go there? Well, this is how it is, is, is in the same way that Saul represented all of Israel, Adam represents all of humankind. Back in the garden, God had said to Adam, he says, you are my representative. He said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you do, you will die. Guess what he did? He ate of the tree. And, and not only did he bring sin and the curse of sin upon himself, but guess what? You and I, him being our representative of all the nation of humankind, fall into the sin as well. Now, I know people will constantly say, well, that's not fair. How dare him? I should get my own chance. Let me tell you something. If it was you and I, before the words even came out of Jesus' mouth, you and I would be sitting over there eating that fruit. We would have blown it too. And here's the deal. Not only if we were the representatives, but the truth is you and I have known time and time again to know what is true about the word of God. And we have faithfully been disobedient to God. Disobeyed what God had ultimately said. So we understand that we're underneath this curse. We understand that we are deserving of this death because we have broken this covenant relationship between God. That is the bad news. The good news is that God supplies a substitute. God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for sins that are not his own. He was a human being, fully God, fully man, and will be so forever. And he was able to be able to come and to be able to take the place for man as substitutionary atonement for you and for me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 through 22, it says for this, as by one man, he says, or as by a man came death, by a man come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now you and I sit back and we hear about the atonement and we think to ourselves, that's beautiful. Jesus Christ taking my punishment, taking my beating, that's a beautiful thing to give yourself up in such a capacity. It's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing and you are right. But do not lose. And here's the point of the text, a huge point of the text. It is a brutal thing. It is brutal. There is nothing about substitutionary atonement, one suffering for the sake of another that is pretty. Now, we think of it that way. We think of, oh, Jesus substitute with us, a little lamb laying down his life for us is so wonderful. It's not the way the word of God conveys it. Not even from the beginning. When you look back at Leviticus chapter 1, when God first begins to present and demonstrate this, this sacrificial system, he gives them, he says, this is how you're going to do it. You need to, this, your, your, your sins need to be atoned for. So you need to kill these animals. Now, these animals could never atone fully for the sin of man because they're animals. But they would appease God's wrath for a period of time until the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, comes and takes away the sins in the world once and for all. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 8. So we understand that that's going to happen. But here's what he says in the very beginning. Here's what atonement is going to look like in Leviticus 1. He says to them, he commands Aaron and his sons, he says, lay, lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's son, the priest, shall bring the blood, and they will throw it 
They will throw the blood against the sides of the altar uh, uh, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall fillet the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood of the fire. And Aaron's sons and the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the fire of the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. There is nothing pretty about this. It's brutal, bloody, disgusting work, all of it. It is here. It is in 2 Samuel chapter 21 when seven men are hung. The NIV literally says impaled. That means that they were hanging by being impaled up on a hill. Nothing beautiful about that. And there is nothing beautiful at Calvary. There's nothing pretty about the picture of Jesus Christ being mangled on the cross, being beaten on the cross, being dispersed on the cross, being ripped in two in the cross. There's nothing beautiful about those things. And see, this is, our problem is, is we've come to the point that I think that, that it's, we become so soft in our thought of all these things. Maybe we become so comfortable with them. You know, there, there's many examples that people will use oftentimes to talk about um, this idea of God trying to kind of um, bring together his justice and then also his love for us and trying to bring that together in the atonement. How does that look? And here's one of the examples you might have heard. It's, they talk about a judge, and they said that there's a judge who was ruling, and, and one day he gets a, case, a court case that it's his best friend that ends up coming before the case, and he hears the case, and he finds out that his best friend is guilty. And so as a just judge, he demands the guy guilty and says, you now owe the maximum penalty of $1 million. Well, he knows that his friend can never make that payment. And so the judge at that particular point, after passing judgment, takes the cloak off, puts his gavel down, walks down, walks over next to the man, pulls out his checkbook and writes a check for $1 million to be able to, 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 be able to atone for the wrongdoing of this man, to make payment for his sin and his failure. And people will sit back and they'll go, that's wonderful. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for me. And in an aspect, it is. Except for when Jesus Christ atoned for you, he didn't write a check. He was beaten to a bloody pulp. Ravaged like an animal. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. You rip these animals apart, and guess what? When the one, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, what do we think is going to happen? Give him a sleeping pill and let him go to sleep and never wake up again? No, we're going to rip him apart. It's the ugliness of the atonement that ultimately happens in the midst of this. And so what are we, what are we, what are we, what are we supposed to do? Look, when you get, if you read the rest of the chapter or not rest of, at least the rest of this pericope, the rest of this section down to chapter 14, it's still bleak. You get to the end of it. This is how the end of it, uh, it goes. These seven men are killed. And then a mother by the name of Rizpah comes over and sees two of her sons that have been killed, and she just stays there for days. And you know what she does? She doesn't have the ability to be able to get them off, the pikes that they're up on. You know what she does? She shoes away the birds to make sure that they don't eat the flesh of her, of her two sons. And then at night, she drives the beast away to make sure that her son's carcasses are protected. This is ugly. So ugly. Why? Why does it leave us this way? Well, you know what? Maybe what the author is trying to do is just get you and I for a moment to be gripped by reality for a moment. My wife and I this is going to come as a great surprise. We have different tastes when it comes to movies. 
That probably never happens to you in your home. Uh, in fact, she watches a movie on her device. I watch one on my device, and it's how we keep um, marriage harmony within, uh, within us. And, and so every once in a while, I'll make a suggestion. Hey, you might really want to watch this movie. This is really, really good. And she responds the same way in every single one of them. She watches it, and she goes, that was horrible. That was a horrible movie. Why in the world did you tell me to watch that movie? Right? And so, so, so any movie I see of her, I can't stand. And here's why. Because the guy always gets the girl. They have children. They have a nice house. They're right off of it or whatever. I like the movies, and I, this might be kind of grotesque. They're more real. You know? She's like, Mike, in your movie, everybody dies. I'm like, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And what I tell her is, mine's more real life than what yours is. So maybe what the author is doing is trying not to dupe us for once. And trying to sit this and say, hey guys, you've been duped because the reality of the atonement is not pretty. It is brutal and it is gruesome. And he's letting that sit in. You say, well, what does that do for us? Well, I think it does at least two things. In the text, when we see these men hanging on this cross, when we see this mother mourning, we begin to understand, and we've, this has been all the way through the text of Scripture we've seen this, is that, man, it does not pay to sin. You are never better off with sin. It always ends badly. It's always horrific. None of us ever, it never works out for us. It never works out for any human being who, who chooses to be able to sin and to be able to re- rebel against God. It always ends in the same way. Now, then you have another side of the story. And that is we see that, that horrendous outcome of sin if you and I ourselves are going to pay it. But on the other side, we see this beautiful concept of atonement as brutal as it actually is. So it's either that we pay for it or we see exactly what it is that Jesus Christ actually did for us. And then when we see the, the extent of suffering that he gave for us, you and I, our affections begin to grow all the more and begin to build all the more. He didn't write us a check. He wrecked his whole being, his whole life. He was ripped apart like an animal because you and I broke the covenant towards God, broke our promises towards God. And yet, in the midst of all this, we're left with one verse of hope. Can I, can I draw you to it? Let, let, me, let me draw you to that verse of hope. Look at verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. You know what it's teaching us? Everybody breaks their covenant promises, and everybody is deserving of death. But there is one king who never breaks his covenant promise. There is one king who says, if you will repent and you will turn, if you will confess with your mouth your sins, he will forgive you. If you turn from your sin and place your weight completely in him, he will never let you go. The enemy may come to try to destroy you. He will protect you, just like Mephibosheth. He will protect you. Why? Because there are many kings who break the covenant promise. That king does not. He does not. And so if you're here this morning and you're sitting there and going, this is brutality of sin, this is where sin ends, yes, that's the bad news. The good news is that there was one who was sent in substitutionary atonement, and the Bible says if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's the one hope in the midst of all of this. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your